preacher's got to have room to move. Finishing up First Peter this morning. It's been quite a journey. Providence of God to bring us through this book. And next week, we're going to begin a summer of psalms. That's Jake's great idea. If you like it, give him all the praise. <laughs> we're going to spend some time going through a few select psalms through the summer and, and trying to model for you how to delight in the psalms, read the psalms, and then even pray the psalms. It'll be a summer of prayer together as well, emphasizing some corporate prayer times, um, modeling for you how to open the Word and use it as a guide to pray to give you all confidence to pray in the Psalms. But we have one more day of Peter left. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6, and we will go right to the end. If I get excited, I might just keep reading through 2 Peter. God writes through Peter, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist Him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus. A faithful brother, as I regard him, have written, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we dive in, let's again ask that God would be with us through His Word. God, I, I love to hear that last song with such hope, such confidence that You are at work as promised through Your church. Your household, Your temple, Your family, Your Spirit is here binding us together, bricks in a holy temple, brothers and sisters in a holy family victors in the war against Satan. God, in a world that's falling apart, crashing and burning, fighting, disputing, devouring itself, I pray that this body would be an example of love, of peace, of harmony, of joy, of hope, of equality, of justice, that Christ and His work might be known in this city and around the world. God, we pray for those around the world who are desperate that this pandemic and all these riots are hurting and ministries like Mercy Ministry in the Philippines struggling to even stay afloat because the money is gone. 
God, we ask that You would provide through Your church. That You would bless us so that we may be a blessing to others. And in that, make the glory of Jesus known in this dark world. Amen. Raise your hand. A little interactive time today. Raise your hand if the last few months has been particularly refreshing and joyful for you. All right. Not very interactive, huh? <laughs> Man, it's been rough. I know we say it every year, but I can't believe it's June already, right? But literally, this year feels like we just skipped over the first half of the year. Everything that we were looking forward to just canceled. Nothing has been ordinary. We've been told just to stay home for a couple of months, and now that we're all emerging from our storm shelters, our bomb shelters, we're realizing it's kind of a war zone out there, isn't it? Literally, in some cities, it's like a war zone. And despite not being told to do anything since March, oddly, we are all exhausted. All of our routines thrown off. Everything that we like to do to find rest and and refreshment is not allowed. The constant threat of death and despair hanging over the world like this thick fog made only denser, more confusing by the conflicting reports from government agencies and the news media. Where are we going? Occasionally, the fog clears enough where you can kind of look through And as you look, you see people lobbing ideological grenades back and forth at one another. Telling you who's right, who's wrong, and which side you're on. No matter what you said. Nobody's safe in this battle. It's so wearying. It's been hard to pinpoint why we feel so exhausted. It just makes us want to quit. Just disengage from the world. Pull away cover our eyes, plug our ears, and just hope that it all goes away soon. But Peter has been telling us of something far better for us. Today we're wrapping up our series through the book of 1 Peter, and as we look back at what Peter has been teaching us, it's actually quite providential that God has put us through this letter at this time in our history. The final text from Peter here is a summary of the entire letter. He's been giving the church encouragement to endure trials when everything around you makes you just want to quit. Throw in the towel. He's reminded us of this great salvation in Christ that frees us from our sins and promises us an eternal rest that's coming soon. He's helping us embrace our identity as exiles, a a gathering of people in a foreign land just waiting for our chance to go home. We work for the good of this foreign land, but we don't found our identity, place our hope in this land. Instead, we are God's instruments in inviting others out of the despair of this world. We do it by living Radically ordinary lives, serving our neighbors, building our homes, loving our church family. 
and inviting others to join this amazing work that God is doing among us in Christ. We know all these truths. We've heard them over and over for the last few months. And yet, it's so easy to forget them and lose focus when everything around us is just chaos. So Peter's going to wrap it all up by summarizing the whole thing, telling us, humbly stand firm in this grace of God. Humbly stand firm in the grace of God. Friends, it's not going to get easier. Brothers and sisters, it's going to continue to be exhausting the more faithful you are. But this is our identity until Christ returns. And thank God that He's given us this season to make that more clear to us. To focus what we are and who we want to become as a church. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. Kind of four, actually. In the first... in. First two verses, six and seven, we're going to look at hopeful humility. What is humility and why is it so important for what we're called to be as a church? And then we can get to work in patient perseverance in verses eight and nine. Eight and nine. We're not called to transform the whole world, to upturn society and change, reform the culture. We stand firm in the ordinary thing that God is doing in the church. And through that, God will do amazing things. And we'll see that happen only in God's sovereign strength, as we'll see in verses 10 and 11. Behind our standing firm is God right there, establishing our feet on the solid rock of Christ. We're going to apply it all with just this very practical, real flesh and blood look at examples of these things in the midst of a world devouring itself. So let's jump in right away and fly through these wonderful, hopeful verses. Go back to verses 6 and 7. We'll read them again to find out what our hopeful humility looks like. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon Him. Because... He cares for you. So again, as we've seen before, Peter begins this section with a therefore. Humble yourselves therefore. And he's, because he's basing what he's saying on what he just said right before that in verse 5. He said, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Every time you see the word one another, you read that. You think the church family. One another. This is us. How we relate to one another says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter's repeating this, picking this up in verse 6 and saying, therefore, if God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves. If you want the most grace from God, if you want to be exalted alongside Christ, humble yourselves now. Humility is a defining mark of the church. God's purpose in suffering, God's purpose in putting us through all this stuff the last few months is to humble you, make you more dependent upon Him, more useful to bring peace among His people. We must be known as a people humbly working in harmony together. We humble ourselves, deny our own impulses, deny our own desires, our rights that we love to stand on. Instead, we throw it all away and say, I am here to serve. 
This is our witness in this world. If we want to call out our society's sins, point out all the injustices that in, in their broken systems, we need to stand firm and give them something better that Christ offers. Show them what God is giving them in Christ. And it all starts with humility. What is humility? Humility often conjures up these images in our mind of someone who's weak, beaten down, not very impressive, ragged. When we're told to be humble, we think it means that we need to start cutting ourselves down, saying bad things about us. When someone praises us or thanks us for doing something good, we think it's humble then to say, ah, it was nothing. Oh, this old thing. But humility is not cutting yourself down so that you'll be known as a humble person. C.S. Lewis said that the truly humble man will not be thinking about humility. Thinking about how, how can I be known as a humble person? He said he'll just not be thinking about himself at all. So one pastor summarized this quote saying, True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Just forget about yourself. This is where Peter wants us to be. Less worried about all the things happening to me, and instead using everything I have to serve others. Until Jesus comes home. That's our call. Humility is recognizing I have nothing. I don't deserve anything anyway. I've got no control, so I am just going to place myself under the control of the one who has it all. Peter says, under the mighty hand of God. See, our our natural response when we see injustice, when we suffer, when we see brokenness, is to jump in and start fighting, try to fix everything. As we see on the news, everyone is trying to do just that. Everyone has an opinion. But And the more that we learn through science and study and exploration how the world works, the more control we think we have. So we grab a hold tighter. We learn how viruses work. How they spread and how they infect the body. And then we do everything we can to prevent it from having any influence over our lives, hurting us in any way. But we never stop to ask, do we actually have that level of power Or we see, we recognize problems of racism, injustice, division in our world. And we get to work trying to transform our society so we can build that righteous culture where everybody gets along and nobody's left behind. But it's impossible. Apart from Christ working through His church, that is how God has promised to work. This entire book has been telling us that this world and its systems are falling apart. The world is devouring itself. And yet, while all of that happens, God, in Christ, is creating a new creation through the church. And we are to endure this world, doing the ordinary things of going to work and working diligently, serving our neighbors, building the church, while looking to Jesus to change this world, one small redeemed community and home at a time. And so we express the trust in God's plan 
dependence upon him to follow through in what we call prayer. Peter continues saying, casting all your anxieties on him. In Greek, that's basically an exact quote of Psalm 55, 22. Peter's grabbing a hold of that quote and putting that right under here, the part where he says, humble yourselves, suggesting that this is what humility looks like. Prayer. Trusting God to work. When you read Peter's letter and you're told to submit to corrupt, unjust policies, put up with difficult workplace environments, endure suffering with joy, it makes you wonder, who's going to take care of me? Come on, God! What what are you talking about, Peter? Peter says, take all of those feelings, all of those fears, and just throw them right at the feet of God's throne. This idea that we disconnect from the world to hide ourselves from threats, or that we fight, we go in and we protest, and we start revolutions, and become an activist in the world, both of these have the same problem. They reveal an anxious heart that's grasping in pride to maintain control. My study Bible explains this verse saying, worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. We need to remember this. Let me say that again. Worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. And prayer is the tool that we get rid of worry. Prayer is the primary tool of a humble person. Yes, it recognizes the problems in the world. The person of prayer, the humble person, sees and feels deeply the injustices leveled against him. The sufferings he experiences. And he says, this hurts. I can't go on any longer, but I must. And so I throw it to you, God. Take it from me. Walk with me. And when he does that, then he can forget himself and get to work building up others. Prayer is humble dependence upon God, expressing our own powerlessness to change anything. It's like us as children before God the Father saying, please, Dad, take care of us. I'm scared. I can't do what you've told me to do. Peter says, God, our Father, will sustain you because He cares for you. Give yourself in hopeful humility, dependence upon God in prayer. Trust Him to take care of you. Only then will you be able to stand firm in patient perseverance. Let's go back to the text and look at that. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in the faith. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter is wrapping up his letter, opening us up to God's sovereign hand working all over the world in the exact same way. 
He's tying it all back to those commands he gave the church right at the beginning. This identity he's been giving us throughout. And saying, this is the identity of local churches, you and the churches all over the world. He says that we are to be sober-minded and watchful. Similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 13. Preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And in a little bit, he refers to the church in Rome as exiles in Babylon. Tying us back to chapter 1, verse 1. That we are exiles. This is the theme he's carrying on through this book. Every time you remember 1 Peter, remember exiles enduring suffering with the promises of God in Christ. Being in exile doesn't mean we just sit back and let the world devour itself while we wait for Jesus to come and rescue us. But we're in the middle of a war, constantly battling, guarding ourselves against a dangerous foe. As Paul said in Ephesians, our battle is not with flesh and blood. Our battle is not with the world itself, but a world that's under the influence of spiritual powers. And the battleground is often in our own hearts, our own minds. Persevering is going to require a coordinated defense unifying our souls together. This is what Peter's saying in these two verses. He gives a series of imperatives, of commands telling us what perseverance looks like. Be sober-minded and watchful. Resist the devil. These first two words, be sober-minded, be watchful, identify the work that we need to have done in our own hearts, in our own minds. Sober-minded speaks of a renewed mind. Not shaped by everything that's happening in the news and people debating all around us, but renewed by the Word. The Word of God working in our minds. Our minds not jumping to conclusions. Oh, this must be what it's all about. But carefully considering, patiently waiting, and wrestling, how does God want me to understand reality? Sober-minded means not letting our emotions drive us down the path. Instead, letting our thoughts steer with wisdom and reason along the narrow way. And be watchful speaks of how we ought to see the world. How we perceive reality. We can see what's really going on in the world Because as we look to Christ, as we marvel at who He is, as we learn more and more about Him, we actually start to see the world the same way that He does. Jake and I were reflecting this week on on the value of 1 Peter to our church so far and what we've learned through it and how it's been good for us. And we kind of came to this realization that Peter is really not very practically focused He's not giving us a a three-step plan to becoming a better husband or wife or citizen or employee. He's not giving us a prescription. Here, take this and you'll immediately find relief. He's trying to shape our minds around what God is doing. God is in control and He's working to save His people by His Spirit through the blood of Christ. He's preparing us to rejoice on the day when Christ's glory is revealed. Peter's trying to renew our minds, not just change our behaviors. Really giving us new lenses. Here, take these off. 
Put these on and take a look at the world. When you see the way Christ does, then you can know how to respond in the myriad circumstances that we find ourselves in. Peter can't possibly instruct us on every single situation that you might find yourself in because he knows the craftiness and the sneakiness of our enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, to, someone to devour. He's sneaking through the grass, the tall weeds, just waiting to pounce upon you for his opportunity to trip you up every single day, coming up with new schemes. There is no five-step plan to dodging the devil. You need spiritual eyes. And when you have those spiritual eyes, you can see him sneaking up on you. And even when he does jump because he's powerful and he comes at you, you can put up a defense with the gospel that you treasure right in your heart. You'll immediately disarm him knowing he cannot overcome you. The only other place that this roaring lion is represented as a great enemy is in Psalm 22, verse 13. An obvious messianic psalm. The whole thing pointing to Jesus and His suffering on the cross. He cries out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? They mock Me. They revile Me. They turn their faces against Me. And yet, there's hope at the end of this psalm that all of this is going to shift. All this suffering is going to give way to glory. When Satan attacks and brings suffering into our lives, friends, we can resist him by running to Christ, fleeing to Christ, who himself took on Satan's greatest assaults head on. He took our sins upon himself and took them into the grave, burying them forever. And he overcame them all, overcame them all in the resurrection. So we can be certain that we too will overcome in our own resurrection. We will not be devoured by the devil. In fact, now Satan becomes our servant. All of his attacks, all of this suffering around us that he's bringing, serves only to make us stronger, more hopeful in Christ, more fit for God's kingdom. This is what it means to resist him. As Peter says in verse 9, Firm in the faith, depending on the Spirit, washed by the blood of Jesus, prayerfully depending on God, trusting in the plans and promises of God, knowing that we will rise to eternal joy with Christ one day. We can stand firm knowing that we're not alone in this battle. We can be unwavering, resolute, because we know that there is a brotherhood not just surrounding us here, but all over the world, throughout the world, he says, enduring similar trials, suffering at the hands of Satan, but they are mounting a coordinated defense that Satan cannot overcome. One tactic of oppressors is that they like to isolate you, make you feel like you're all alone. Nobody understands you. But Peter says that we are in solidarity with suffering saints all of the, over the world who are united in our suffering Savior. The one who promises that the gates of hell will not 
prevail against his church. God guarantees it. He guarantees it because he is in absolute sovereign control. It's what he says in verses 10 and 11. God is at work by his sovereign strength. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is in control of your entire life. You have no need ever to be anxious or weary. He holds every single moment of history in His hand, unfolding it according to His plan. God is sovereign over the past, the present, and the future. Peter says, in eternity past, the God of grace called you. This happened according to His eternal plan made before the foundations of the earth. And now, this God of grace is also with you a little while in the present. It doesn't seem like our suffering is just a little while when you're in the midst of it, just dragging on and on. But Peter says in his next letter to continue to encourage these same saints that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. He's encouraging us to realize that this is going to be over before you know it. Life is just a blink of an eye. It's a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. But we can stand firm because He is with us every step of the way. And He guarantees in Christ that you will endure long into the eternal future because He Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is incredible. This link of words are a chain of salvation, kind of like Paul's in in Romans chapter 8. They're related to all these things Peter's been telling us, teaching us, commanding us throughout this letter. Repent, stay faithful, be strong, stand firm. When you fall, you think you're the one that picks yourself back up. But there he is, grabbing you by the collar and setting you back on the path. When you stand firm, you think, I'm the one that's bravely enduring. And there he is, holding you fast. It's the age-old debate between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Are we responsible to stand firm or is God holding us firm? Yes! Both! We stand by trusting the God who can establish us on a firm foundation. We remain immovable not because of any strength in ourselves, but because, verse 11 says, He has the dominion forever and ever. That phrase in Greek, there is no verb there. The verb be is put there to kind of make it a whole sentence. So it makes sense to us. And it's pointing forward, so be fits there. But Peter's emphasis for our encouragement is that God has had this power Forever. He's had it from eternity past. He has it right now. It's on display in this room. The fact that you guys want to be here and worship together is God's power at work. And that power will continue forever into eternity. 
Only by looking to this God in Christ can we stand firm against the crashing waves of this life. This is the lens Peter wants us to see this world through in order that we would humbly stand firm in the grace of God, casting all our anxieties on Him, the One who has dominion forever and ever. So what have we learned from this entire series? What is this letter calling Redemption City Church to be, especially now in this time of fear and anxiety and confusion? Peter's closing thoughts highlight for us some very real flesh and blood examples of what he's been teaching. People for us to imitate. First, we know we're to be in hopeful humility, surrendering our lives to God, to work by His mighty hand through His people. And so Peter gives us a picture of Silvanus, he says. He's also known as Silas elsewhere. He says Silvanus is the one that helped him get this message out to the people. Out to these churches in desperate need of hope. And he speaks of Mark and the church that's in Rome, she who is in Babylon. They were all partakers in this ministry who were experiencing many difficulties, part of the church suffering throughout the world. It likely cost them greatly to get this message out to these suffering saints. It may have cost them their very lives. They may have lost their families in doing this. To get this message of hope to us But they surrendered their concerns to God and said, use me, God. I trust that whatever comes my way, whatever sickness, whatever mockery, whatever slander, I will gladly take it to give my brothers and sisters hope. Friends, it's understandable if right now you are gripped by fear, exhausted by the arguing, sick of all the drama, confused by all the reports. It's understandable if you just want to pull away, hide, rest for a while. I get it. But we're not called to that. Now is the time to take all of those concerns and cast them before the Lord and then forget yourself and jump in. Press into the body. Recognize you can't fix every problem or avoid every threat in life but trust Him to care for your soul and your life as you serve Christ's work to build His immovable church while you trust in God's sovereign strength. As Peter did, while he wrote briefly, he says in verse 12. took us a few months to get through it, but it was actually pretty brief. He says he wrote these things to declare, exhort and declare the true grace of God that he saw working among them. And he would want us to know that he can see God working right now in our midst through all these things we've experienced lately. Peter's words are God's voice to us, offering real encouragement for real suffering. It should give us more confidence than ever that we are right in the middle of God's plan. And His grace will sustain us. With these spiritual eyes now, we don't, we aren't surprised by a pandemic or nationwide rioting. This is what the world does, right? 
People try to take control over things that they have no control over. And they only cause more harm because of it. But the church is to be the gathering of peace and love and hope and equality because we've already cast all our cares on the Lord, on God's sovereign strength. We've humbly released our hearts from striving to fix everything. We've refocused our eyes on the work of God to renew all things in Christ through His church. That's how we endure in patient perseverance. The way that we are going to endure in faithfulness to the end is through this ordinary faithfulness that we've seen throughout the book of Peter. Faithfulness to one another. Faithfulness in our own homes. The most powerful tool of perseverance. The greatest gift of endurance and encouragement and affirmation for your soul God has given to you in the church. This is where He has chosen to reveal His peace to the world. You, the people of God, bought by the blood of Christ, brought to life together by His Word. The whole world wants justice, but in every effort, they just keep compounding the injustice. The world wants peace, but every time they jump in and try to make it happen, they just bring more chaos. The church is to be an example of all these things to the world. And it's shown in our affection for one another. This affection that Peter has for Mark right here in the last verse, calling him his son. And that the church ought to have for one another. As Peter ends his letter to the church, telling us to greet, welcome, express delight in one another, in our togetherness, with a kiss of love. So everyone, turn to your neighbor now. and Just kidding. (laughs) Kind of awkward time for that, huh? (laughs) The kiss of love was just a cultural way of expressing brotherly affection for one another. Some cultures still do this today, but it's not necessarily give each other kisses, but the principle is getting very practical. Find ways to display this love, this peace that we share together. This true grace of God that brings us into the same room, unites us as one affectionate gathering of God's people. This is what the whole letter has really been all about. We're partners in gospel ministry to this whole city. We're fellow sufferers in exile trying to encourage one another to endure. We need each other. Greet one another with a kiss of love is a way of saying, stick it out together. Love one another. Be intentionally, emotionally vulnerable to one another. Because we can't survive without one another. Have you felt that over these last few months? How hard is it to be separate? Oh, what a joy it is to finally see your faces. To hear your words singing in my ears. We need that. If you don't feel that way about the gathering, it's time for you to do some soul searching. Figure out if you really have eyes set on Christ. 
If that you're dependent upon Him in prayer, if you're ready to give your life for the good of the body. The church is not a place of pretense where we come to the gathering and show how holy we are, how well-dressed we are, how we've got our lives together. We are people who are coming to one another, to the Spirit of God alive in each other, saying, I need grace today. I need to hear it from your lips. I need to feel it in your affection. Let us not be a people who bite and devour one another, as Paul says in Galatians 5. The most effective way that the devil devours God's people is by getting them to bite and devour one another, fighting over who's most right, who's most faithful, who's the most loving. And in that, then we become just like the world and he wins. The reason we're all so exhausted right now is because we've been apart from each other for so long, separated from one another, immersed in a world that's biting and devouring itself. This is not the way we are called to live. Christians are exiles who don't put our hope in this world, but we humbly trust God to work through His gathered, affectionate people to unify us together, to greet one another with such affection that seems so strange to us after we've been told by the world for months that it's unhealthy to be affectionate. But we must strive for this gathered affection. We must hold fast to it and work to find creative ways to enjoy it. Because this is how we share the peace to all who are in Christ. Don't let this these difficult times pull you away, keep you away, but press in to the church family. Find ways to connect more deeply together, to worship together. Don't let this difficult time cause anxiety, fear, frustration, bitterness to create division among us, but let us strive to be unified in Christ in our affection towards one another as beloved brothers and sisters. Exiles helping each other as we await the arrival of our King. Together, let's humbly stand firm in the grace of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Richard and, and the hotel staff that have allowed us a place for us to share this affection in Christ. And I pray that now with this New, these new goggles, these new glasses, lenses placed over our eyes that we can see the world as Christ does, that we would go into this summer on mission. That we would let nothing separate us from You, from the love of Christ, from the Spirit at work in us. That we would go out and invite others in. And that as we go into these psalms, the psalms would be the songs of our hearts as we express dependence and hope and confidence in Your guaranteed work in our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Amen. Usually when we do our uh, communion and offering for my kids were up front moving around so much. And we're forward going to offer for a while as well. So we're gonna use this time as just a time of confession.